Well, we're in our third week of this series that we're calling Barriers to Belief. And, uh, and just as a reminder, here's what this series is about. This is a series where we're taking four different questions that kind of serve as barriers to us going deeper in our relationship with God. Or if you're not a Christian, the, these are the kinds of questions that may be the barrier that's keeping you from becoming a Christian. There's nagging questions that you say, I I just don't know if I'm ready. I'm not ready to become a Christian. I'm not ready to give my life to Jesus until I get some kind of answer to this question nagging at me. And even if you are a Christian and you said, all right, well, I've decided to go ahead and take the plunge, even then we know that we can be limited in how deeply we can experience our closeness with God if we still have these questions that we're ignoring and not dealing with. So a couple of weeks ago, we started off by talking about the question of all the suffering in the world and where is God and how can there be a good God if there's all the suffering? And last week, we talked about the question of how can it be that there's only one way to God and that Jesus is that only way? And what we're going to do this week is we're going to talk about the question, is faith by its nature, is faith contrary to reason? Or another way to put this question is this. If I'm going to exercise faith, do I have to stop thinking? And in order to go through this, we're going to go through some verses right at the beginning of the greatest chapter in the whole Bible about faith. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read the first two verses out of Hebrews 11. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses are in the bulletin, on the insert in the bulletin that you got on the way in. And they're also going to be up here on the screen as I read them. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. This is God's word. Now, when it comes to the questions about faith, Part of the difficulties that we all know that believing the wrong person or believing the wrong thing can blow up in our face. We can get into a lot of trouble. We can lose a lot. That's what happens with scams. And scams are nothing new. And at this point in life, internet scams are not anything new. But a scam, an internet scam that's been going on, especially in the last five years, has been dubbed a romance scam. And these scams relate to those online dating sites. And so it typically happens, and and typically the target of this scam um, is a woman who's a little bit older, highly educated, and has some discretionary income. And she starts chatting on one of these sites with a man, and they exchange pleasantries, and they start getting to know each other. And he gives lots of overtures about love and caring for her, and maybe sends some candy and some flowers, and talks about how he has this great, thriving business that's doing great, but takes him overseas a lot, which is why they haven't met yet, because he has to be overseas a lot. And then eventually, he sends a message and says, I'm stuck overseas, and my funds got frozen. I need a loan. And she gives the loan. And then lo and behold, a couple weeks or a couple months later, something else comes up. And I can't believe this. This has never happened to me, but I'm in a pinch. Can I get another loan? Um, and, and as much as we might listen to it and say, ah, oh, they'd get find out, found out. They would figure it out. Sometimes they do. But there are stories of women that have lost tens of thousands of dollars in these kinds of scams. Um, In fact, I read an article that just chronicled three women who had been scammed in this way. 
Um, all, all of them, more than $10,000 that they'd gone ahead and given. One of them had borrowed money from her extended family to give to this guy and hadn't yet told her extended family that it was all a scam. And at the end of the article, they had a tagline, just an, an overall statement from each of these three women who had been taken advantage of in this way. And here's what each one said. One of them said, I've been made a fool of. The second one said, I was truly truly ignorant. And then the third, maybe summing it up best, said, I trusted. I shouldn't have trusted. Believing the wrong person or believing the wrong thing can have disastrous consequences in our lives. And when we start getting into the religious fear, we recognize it's, it's not just that you can lose money or lose status or be made to look foolish. It can have even more drastic consequences in your lives. We all know that there's a group of people that drank poison Kool-Aid on their own volition because that, they believed that that would lead them towards the afterlife. And we all know that there were young men who flew airplanes into towers because they believed that was their ticket to paradise. If you believe the wrong person or the wrong thing, it can have disastrous consequences, which I think is one of the reasons why there's people that in our culture today will say, all right, well, faith and evidence, they're at opposite sides of the spectrum. So there's people out there, there's religious people, there's people of faith and people who practice faith, and then there's people who live by evidence. There's people who live by faith, and then there's people who live by logic and rationality. There's people who live by faith, And then there's people who live by facts. And when it's put that way, very few of us are excited about being on the faith side of that equation. We don't want to abandon logic and rationality and facts and reason. We don't want to abandon all that. But if we're going to have faith, do we need to abandon all that? We're going to go through a discussion about faith today. And actually, one of the things that we get to do is we get to bust a few myths about faith. And I want to start by busting the biggest myth, what I think was probably the biggest myth about faith, and that's that faith is contrary to reason. In fact, the whole basis of what we're going to be talking about today is this. Faith is based on evidence, not on ignorance. You are not going to be asked to choose between faith and thinking. Faith is actually based on evidence, not based on ignorance. And we're going to focus. We'll go through some other things in Hebrews 11, but we're going to focus especially on those first two verses that we read. And as we do, we're going to see some things. We're going to see something that faith practices. We're going to see something that faith presumes. And then we're going to see something that faith prizes. So let me put the verse up again. So so we'll start with verse one. And you can see verse one is a two-part definition of faith. And I'll mention some things in the rest of Hebrews 11. But Hebrews 11 is the great chapter about faith in the whole Bible. It's where the author of Hebrews chronicles how men and women in the Old Testament lived their lives by faith and how that drew them near to God. And so he starts with this two-pronged definition of faith. Now, faith is confidence about what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's very similar statements, but we'll take them one by one. So the first part, he says, faith is confidence in what we hope for. And here's the first point that he makes. Faith practices confidence. We think of faith, sometimes we think of just this giant leap from reason. But if you think of the word confidence, 
You recognize confidence is something that all of us practice every day. Confidence has to do with making a decision based on the idea that you can rely on someone or rely on something. Faith is confidence. And this is maybe another one of the big myths that needs to be busted right now. It is not that there are people of faith. We are all people of faith. We all practice faith. Let me try to prove it to you right now. How many of you have gotten on an airplane before? All right. You've practiced faith. Now, either there's a whole bunch of you that have never been on an airplane, or you wouldn't raise your hand no matter what I said. So let me just ask it this way. How many of you have ever been in a car before? All right. Everyone has practiced faith. Faith is confidence. We all have done things that we don't know exactly how they're going to turn out because we were confident in the person who is driving us or flying us. Think of the airplane for a moment. Um, Now, when you get on an airplane, I want you just to think about something really important. Who is it on the airplane that gets you from point A to point B? The pilot gets you from point A to point B. I want you to think if there has ever been a time that you have taken a flight and you have gone and personally vetted the pilot. (laughs) Did you find out in advance the name of the pilot and do a Google search beforehand to find out about their stats, find out about their education? Did you have a little powwow on your way onto the plane? Before we take off, I got some interview questions for you. In fact, just think about this for a moment. How many times have you flown and you never even saw the pilot? The only way you knew the pilot was there was that he every once in a while interrupted your show that you were watching by telling you something that you already kind of knew and didn't care about. We exercise faith. We exercise faith not because we've said, I haven't thought about this at all, I'm just going to get on an airplane. We've exercised faith because we say, all right, this airline has a good reputation be pretty hard to slip through the cracks there. Saw the pilot, the pilot appears to be legit. Everything appears to be in order, but you don't know for sure. You've got to exercise some faith. But again, the faith is not stupid. The faith is just confidence in what you hope for. And that word hope can can get us off track because in, in English, in the 21st century United States, we use hope, we're sort of like faith is what you hope for. Faith is where you just kind of shut your eyes and say, I really want this to happen. I really want to get this job. I really wish that I get this job. I really hope I get this job. So I'm just going to believe that I'll get that job. We haven't been able to have kids yet, but we really want to have kids. We really hope that we can have kids. So we're just going to believe that we're going to have kids. I've got a disease and the doctors say that I need an operation, but you know what? I'm just going to hope that I get better. So I'm going to choose to believe it. That use of hope is not the biblical idea of hope. We say hope and we basically mean wish. When the authors of the Bible say hope, they basically mean expectation. We are confident of what we expect to take place. So go back to the airplane. You're sitting on the airplane, it hasn't taken off yet. And by the way, when you're sitting on an airplane and it hasn't taken off yet, what is every single person on the airplane doing? They're all on their phones. Everybody's on their phone. I want to tell you about a phone conversation on an airplane that I have never overheard. Tell the girls I love them. My will is in the front top drawer of the dresser. Um, The funeral arrangements are for next Friday. 
These are the three songs that I want there. I just want you all to know that I love you. This will probably be the last time we speak because I'm about to get on an airplane. I have never overheard that conversation. The conversation that I've overheard again and again is something to this effect. When I get there, here's what we're going to do. There's the expectation that this plane, that this pilot is going to get me from point A to point B. You're not there yet, but you have that expectation. And again, just recognize that's not a foolish expectation. That's a pretty reasonable expectation. That is not blind faith, which is another one of the big myths surrounding faith, that faith is blind. Faith is not blind. Blind faith is if you were to say, regardless of the evidence, just believe. Like if the airplane is about to take off and you see somebody a couple rows over and they are just freaking out. They're having a panic attack. We're all going to die. The plane's going to be hijacked. We're going to crash. This is all going to go terribly. They're just freaking out. Blind faith would be if you went up to them and you said, stop thinking. You're thinking way too much. Stop thinking and just believe we're going to get there. That would be blind faith. But let me tell you what biblical faith would be. Biblical faith is if you were to go up to that person who's freaking out and say, flying on this plane is a good bet. Flying on this plane isn't stupid. In fact, let me tell you the stats real quick. Let me tell you the probability that this pilot and this plane are going to get us to our destination. Now, we all know plane crashes happen. We're not going to pretend that they don't happen. But if you fly on an airplane, your chances of crashing are 1 in 11 million. Pretty good odds you're going to make it to the other side. And by the way, for those of you who are afraid to fly, when the plane does crash, the survival rate from plane crashes overall is 95.7%. You are incredibly, incredibly unlikely to die from a plane crash. Then maybe the person would say, well, maybe it's not going to crash. Maybe somebody's going to hijack the plane. And you could say, okay, let's think about that one. Since the year 2000, of all of the flights that have taken off, there have been 16 hijackings, including the 9-11 hijacking, 16 times, out of about 400 million flights. Now, I, I had to write this down so I would remember this stat right. Let me tell you the percentage of flights that have been hijacked. 0.000004%. You got pretty good odds here. If those aren't odds you're willing to bet on, you're not going to have much success in life. In fact, you're not going to leave your room in life. You're not going to ever get in a car. You're not going to ever talk to another person. You're not ever going to take a job. You're not ever going to invest in a stock. You're not going to do anything if those aren't odds that you're willing to take. Faith doesn't say, stop thinking and just believe. Faith says, think about it. This is a good bet. This is a good gamble. It is a gamble. There is a chance that this goes south. But this is a good bet to take. You should have confidence in what you're about to do. And as Christians, the kind of faith that we're called to is not the kind of faith where we say, oh, just stop thinking. You're overthinking it. By the way, I think that's rarely true that any of us overthink anything. You're overthinking it. Just stop thinking and just believe. That's not what we're called to do. 
What we're called to do is to place our confidence in something that we've become convinced of. In fact, over and over again in the Bible, the authors of the Bible tell God's people not just to believe anything. If you read through the Old Testament, they're constantly being warned, don't just believe any prophet prophet who comes to you. Don't just believe any teacher who comes to you. Even a miracle worker, don't automatically believe them. In 1 John chapter 4, John says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. In other words, they're saying if somebody comes to you with a message and they're saying that they have a message from God, don't automatically believe it. Test that message. In fact, the apostle Paul went even further. In the book of Galatians, he basically said to the Galatians, here's the deal. I came to you and I told you the gospel. I told you the gospel of a God who sent his son to die for people, to die for their sins that we are saved by grace and not by our own works, that we're given the Holy Spirit by the pure grace of God, that's the message that I came to you with. And then Paul says, if anyone comes with a different message, don't believe them. Don't put your faith in that. And then he went further. He said, "Um, if I come back to you with a different message, don't believe me. And then he took it even a step further. He said, if an angel comes to you with a different message, don't believe them. As Christians, we're not told, stop thinking and just believe. We're told, place your confidence in something that you've been convinced of the evidence for. This is why when Jesus and the apostles proclaimed his message, there were signs and wonders associated with it. God was confirming the message. This is why we don't just look back at Jesus as somebody who taught some good things. We look back at Jesus as somebody that God raised from the dead to confirm his identity. As Christians, we're not told stop thinking and just believe. In fact, my counsel to you would be, think about it. Think more about it. And I'll just say from a level, those of us who are in leadership here at Life Bible Fellowship Church, we are not peddling something that we don't believe in. I believe if you have questions, come and ask those questions. I believe that the more that you engage, the more you will find good, solid reason to put your confidence in Jesus Christ. Faith is confidence of what we hope for. So faith practices confidence, but let's look at the second half of the definition. The second half of the definition is that faith is assurance about what we do not see. So faith practices confidence, and now what we see in the second half of verse one is that faith presumes certainty. And this could be the point where some of you could say, all right, this is where I get off the bus, presume. I'm not gonna presume. That's where we get faith and reason. That's where we get faith and logic. I'm not willing to presume. People of faith are willing to presume. They're willing to act like they're sure when they're not actually sure. I'm not willing to do that. And what I want to say once again is, yes, you are willing to do that. You do that every day. We all presume certainty when we're not actually sure. Think back to those plain statistics. When you say, all right, According to statistics, I have a 99.999996% chance of not being hijacked. We all say, I'm willing to presume that final point, 0000004. I'm willing to make up that difference. That's all this means, that it presumes certainty, that it's assurance, even though you haven't seen the thing that you're assured of. You decide to act as if you're sure, even though you're not sure, because frankly, there's no other way to function in life. Faith presumes 
certainty, which means to become a Christian, you don't have to suddenly become stupid, but there is no way to do it without faith. There is no way to do it without saying, I'm not utterly sure, but I'm going to make up the difference by faith. There's no other way to do this. And and I know, all right, so in the first point, we kind of use the airline illustration. Let me use a different illustration for this one to talk about faith in this sense. Let's talk about marriage. Now, when you get married, it is a step of faith. It is a risk. You're saying to the other person, in essence, I'm, I'm putting my future largely in your hands. I'm putting a lot of trust in you. I'm trusting that I can count on you. I'm trusting that this is a good decision. And you don't know for certain that it is a good decision. In fact, the stats are worse on this one, as you know. You say, all right, I, I don't know for sure. And so then you could say, all right, well, well then what I'm going to do, if, if there's something that's really that uncertain, maybe I need to protect myself on this. But the fact is that when it comes to marriage, if you walk into marriage and you are trying to protect yourself within that marriage, it will undercut the entire relationship. You've got to presume certainty, even when you know you're not completely certain. You've got to live as if you can really trust this person, even though you recognize there's a chance that you really can't trust them. That's why if you go into marriage and you have a prenuptial agreement getting into that marriage, you are starting off your marriage by undercutting what marriage is all about. I'm all in, but I'm going to make sure I'm protected just in case. I'm all in, forsaking all others and keeping myself only for you. But if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'm going to be protected as I do this. Prenuptial agreements undercut the whole nature of marriage. You know what else undercuts the whole nature of marriage? When you keep your checking accounts separate. I know I'm going to get emails about this one. (laughs) It happened last time. When you say, hey, we're married, we are one flesh, we are in this together, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine, but really, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. I remember talking to a couple one time and one of the spouses was talking about borrowing money from the other spouse. This is not marriage. I'm being dead serious right now. I don't know what that is. I don't know what you want to call that. That is not marriage. As you looking at the situation and saying, I'm going to acknowledge that I don't trust you. Not even going to pretend that I trust you. In that kind of marriage, you will never experience the oneness that God has for you. You will never experience the unity. You will never experience the trust. And it's risky. And I recognize that it's risky. And I recognize there's a reason why people do prenuptial agreements. There's a reason why people keep their money separate. It is a risk. But you undercut the entire nature of what marriage is by doing that. Faith presumes certainty. You recognize I don't have utter certainty in here. I don't have utter assurance, but I'm going to live as if I do. I'm going to live as if I'm sure of what I do not see because otherwise there's just no way to do this. And as Christians, there's no problem with this. We can recognize there's things that we act like we're sure of that, that we've never seen. We act like we're sure that there's a God. And I don't know about you. I've never seen God. I didn't live when Jesus was here. So I've never seen Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I've never seen the Holy Spirit. I've never seen my soul. I've never seen heaven. I've never seen my sin. I I believe in all kinds of things that I've never seen. But let me just pause and say this. I've never seen God. Have I seen evidence of God? You better believe I've seen evidence of God. 
It's the evidence of God. Every time I open my eyes, every time I look outside at the creation, every time I look at just the science behind who we are as human beings and the intricate way that we've been made, I see evidence of God. I see evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead and transformed society. I have seen evidence of the Holy Spirit transforming people's lives. I have seen evidence of these things. I'm not sure of them. I haven't seen them. But I'm going to walk forward presuming that I'm sure of them, even though I recognize at some level that's faith. That's faith making up the difference. Faith practices confidence. And faith presumes certainty, but here's where we get to get into the very specific nature of Christian faith with this third point when we get into verse two. Verse two says, this is what the ancients were commended for. In other words, all the men and women of faith that he is about to talk about in the whole rest of the chapter, he says, it's not just that they did good things. It was their faith, their confidence in what they hoped for, their assurance of what they had not seen. It was that that they were commended for before God. Faith practices confidence, and faith presumes certainty. And finally, faith prizes Christ. Christian faith specifically says, I have no treasure greater than the God of the universe and the son that he sent. So I'm going to prize Christ. I'm going to treasure Christ in my own heart. My faith is not just something that I'm doing in my head. My faith is that I am giving my heart to say, and there is no greater treasure than Jesus. And the men and women of faith in the book of Hebrews lived that way, even though they hadn't yet heard the message of Jesus. They lived in faith of this God who had made them promises. And so if you read the rest of Hebrews 11, you read about Noah, and Noah's in the middle of a desert, and God tells him to build an ark because a flood is going to come. And Noah hasn't seen the flood, and he hasn't seen the rain, but he prizes God enough to live by faith and expect that he'll be rewarded for what he's been promised. And then we read about Abraham, and Abraham is told by God, leave behind your family, leave behind your home, everything that's familiar to you, leave behind, and you're going to go to a new place, and I'm not going to tell you that place until you get there. And Abraham leaves it all behind, walking forward, trusting and prizing the God who made promises, and Abraham not only gets to see God over and over again reward him, but Abraham gets to experience the birth of his own son when his wife had been barren. We get to read about Moses. And Moses is sitting pretty in Egypt when Egypt is the big kid on the block. And Moses, by faith, decides, I would rather find my association with the oppressed people of God than with the rich people in Egypt. Because while the people of Israel don't have a lot of money and don't have a lot of food and don't have a lot of power, you know what they do have? They have God. And that's where I want to be. And Moses experienced the people of God being brought out of Egypt and brought into the new land. And you walk through all this, if you walk through Hebrews 11 and you hear all these stories and these amazing things that the men and women of faith did, and if you were to read through all 40 verses, after those 40 verses, do you know what you would find? You'd find Hebrews 12. (laughs) Let me read you the first two verses of Hebrews 12. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews says, Moses and Noah and Abraham and Samson and and, and all of these other people, they lived by faith. We live on the other side of faith. We actually know the name of our Savior. We've actually heard the story. We live on the other end of this. We're not simply looking forward and saying, someday God will send a Savior. We're looking at the past and saying, God sent a Savior. We are prizing Jesus. We are fixing our eyes on Jesus. Which means that we have the privilege, not just of knowing of the idea of Jesus, we get to know who he actually was. We get to read the stories of the amazing and profound grace that he gave to people who had absolutely nothing to offer to him. All the way down to the thief who was dying next to him on the cross. Didn't have time to go and proclaim the gospel, didn't have time to go and get baptized, didn't have time to do any good works. And Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. We get to see the profound grace of Jesus. We get to see the profound power of Jesus. We get to see that he talked and the wind stopped blowing because he told the wind to stop blowing. We get to see him cast out blindness. We get to see him speak and the world responds. We get to see the grace of Jesus. We get to see the power of Jesus. We get to see the words of life of Jesus, that he is the bread of life, that he is the light of the world, that he is the good shepherd. We get to look at Jesus and we get to cast our eyes on him. We get to move forward saying he is our greatest prize. He is our greatest treasure. Which at the very least means that faith is not simply something that we practice in our minds. We don't just embrace the idea that Jesus came and died and rose from the grave. We prize him in our hearts, fixing our eyes on him. You know, the author of Hebrews kind of pointed towards this idea. If you were to go back to Hebrews 11, verse 6, he sums up what it means to have Christian faith. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe. Now he says two things. You've got to believe two things. Must believe that he exists. It's a good starting point. There is a God. I've come to him believing that there is a God out there. Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Two things you believe about God, you believe that he's there, and you believe that he pours out his grace and rewards to those who seek him. So you got Noah, and Noah says, I don't see any flood, I don't see any rain, but you know what? I'm gonna trust not only that God is out there, but I'm gonna trust that he will reward me for walking by faith when there's so many reasons to doubt. And Abraham says, I don't know how this is going to turn out with leaving my homeland, but I believe that God is there. I mean, after all, he spoke to me, so I believe that God exists, and I believe that following him will be made worth my while. And Moses says, I'm giving up a lot. I'm giving up riches and comfort by going to the people of Israel, but I not only believe that there's a God out there, I believe that God out there will make it so that I never regret making this decision. And we prize Jesus. We prize Christ. 
And we say, whatever it's going to cost me and whatever risk is involved and whatever short-term losses I incur, I believe not only that there's a God out there, but I believe that there's the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and that no one who has ever put their faith in him has ended up being put to shame. We will have reward. And it'll look different in different times. Sometimes the reward is just going to be the comfort and the hope and the joy that we get through walking with God through our difficult times. And sometimes the reward is going to be that he brings us through a situation just to show off his power that we never would have got through without him doing something powerful. And sometimes the reward is that he's going to surround us with brothers and sisters that bring us comfort and bring us help when we never would have been around those people if we weren't united by Jesus. Sometimes the reward is going to be the presence of the Holy Spirit to lead us in power and victory over things that would own us if it wasn't for him. The reward's going to be a lot of things, but the reward that's going to be there for everyone who places their faith in Jesus is that at the end of this life, we are going to be welcomed into eternity with an inheritance that we never earned. God is there, and God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So let me just say a word to those of you who are, who are brothers and sisters, who are believers in Jesus. And some of you may be at kind of a crossroads right now. Where you're saying, all right, there's something God's calling me to do. I'm not quite sure I want to do it because it seems like a big bet. It seems like a big gamble. So maybe you're in the battle with sin and you're like, you know, the reward that sin is offering me, it seems kind of good. It's pretty tempting. I think I kind of want to go that way. And it would be a big risk to fight for holiness. It would be a big risk to trust God that fighting against sin is better than giving in to sin. I want to encourage you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Prize Jesus above all else. You are not making a bad gamble by trusting him during the temptation of sin. Stay in the fight. And stay in the fight when you're coming up against a decision and you're looking at it and you kind of know what you want to do in the short term, but you kind of think God might be calling you to do something different. And the thing that he's calling you to do different is going to be a lot more difficult. And frankly, at that point, this point, you don't even really want to consult God. Sort of like, if I don't ask him, I won't know what he's going to say. If I don't know what he says, I won't be held responsible to do what he wants me to do. And so you're just sort of like, all right, I'm I'm just going to do this, and I'm going to try to do this without consulting God. What I want to encourage you to do is treat Jesus Christ like the Lord that he is, and trust him to be the Savior that he is. You will not regret following his lead as opposed to your own. And it might mean that right now you're sort of like, I was wronged and I don't want to forgive. Or I have money and I don't want to be generous. Or I have things going on in my life and I'm not sure I want to yield them to God. It is a gamble to walk by faith. But the God of the universe who sent his one and only son to die for us, that is a God worth betting on as a God worth trusting. You're not exercising blind faith. Your eyes are wide open and you're showing confidence and assurance in him. Let me also say a word to any of you who are here this morning and you're not Christians. Um, And and maybe you're you're here and you're saying, yeah, I know I'm not a Christian. I'm coming and I'm I'm trying to figure things out in church. Uh, Maybe some of you are even like, yeah, I, I don't normally come, but Mother's Day, mom asked me to come. Here I am. That happens. Wherever you're at right now, here's what I want to say. There is no way to become a Christian without exercising faith. I'm not going to hide the ball on that. 
There is no way to enter into this without exercising faith. It is a gamble, but it is a gamble worth making. And it's not just a gamble of the head. It is a gamble of the heart. And I'll say what I believe is I believe God is at work. And I believe there's probably some of you here that it's not just that you've heard some arguments and you said, ah, that's kind of reasonable, that's good. Maybe I'll think about it. God has been working and drawing your heart to him. God doesn't simply change us in the mind. God changes us from the inside out. And right now, the message of Jesus that you're hearing to you is just the aroma of life. You're saying, this is what I need. This is what I need. I need that forgiveness. I need that grace. I need to be part of the people of God. I want to be united to God. I'm kind of scared to do it. But this is the message of life right now. And if this is the message of life, my invitation is simple. My invitation is to take the step of faith to come to Jesus. Take the step of faith to put your trust in him, to abandon all trust in yourself, to save yourself or to make yourself good or to make yourself purposeful and to put all of your trust in Jesus Christ as the one and only savior. And in a moment, I'm gonna lead us in prayer. And as I'm leading in prayer, I wanna give an invitation also. First of all, I wanna give an invitation to any believer who's here that you're at a crossroads Don't leave without soliciting prayer from somebody today. We're going to have Mike Cloud and a team of people up here right after the service. We're going to have a bunch of us outside in the back who you can get prayer with. If you're at a crossroads, don't leave without getting prayer. And if your crossroads is that today's the day that you're going to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, I'm not only going to ask you to pray with me now, but I'm going to ask you before you leave, either have a conversation with someone or grab that connection card and mark on that connection card that you've placed your faith in Jesus so that you can have friends along on the journey. Let me pray for us now. Father, I pray that you bring us healing in any place where we've come to believe that our faith in you is a bad gamble. Father, I pray that you bolster us. Sometimes we can say to you, we have faith that help us in our lack of faith, help us in our unbelief. We pray that you give help through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray, pray that you give us help by reminding us of the many times that you've been faithful. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are at crossroads, and I pray that you lead them with joy and with hope as they trust in you. And I also pray for anyone here who's ready to place their faith in Jesus for the first time and might be ready to pray something like this. God, I need forgiveness. I need your grace. I can't make it on my own. I can't get eternal life for myself. I can't make myself good enough. I need Jesus. I need new life. I need an inheritance. I need a father. Forgive my sins. Welcome me into the family. Cleanse me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. And Father, for anyone who's praying that, use your power to confirm that in their hearts today. We pray for you to lead us as men and women of faith. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.